stumble through your days. Got your head hung low, your sky's a shade of gray. Zombie in a maze. Two, please. You're asleep inside, but you can shake awake. Cause you're just a dead man walking. Think about your only option. But you can flick the switch and brighten up your darkest day. Sun is up and the color's blinding. Take the world and redefine it. Leave behind your narrow mind. You'll never be the same. Come alive, come alive. Go and light your light. Let it burn so bright. Reach it up. To the sky, and it's open wide. Your legs will fire. The world becomes a fantasy, and you're more than you could ever be. Cause you're dreaming with your eyes wide open. Whoa, and you know you can't go back again to the world that you were living in. Cause you're dreaming with your eyes wide open. So come alive. Good morning, Hope, and welcome. You, you made it on this amazing spring day in Iowa. I'm all for it. It gives me one more weekend I can wear a sweater vest, so that's, that's good news for me. Uh, but we're glad you're here. We're continuing this, this Sunday after Easter with our year-long message series that we've been in at all of our Hope campuses and online, reading through the whole Holy Bible in one year, where we've been encouraging all of us to, uh, to grab a, a study guide, a reading plan, uh, and to read through the Bible from start to finish in 2023. Uh, on the screen, and we'll leave it up on the big screen for a little bit, there's a QR code that you can scan. 
it's got some resources on it, the reading plan, some study guides that you can uh, jump right into this. There's no pressure to, if, you, if you're just coming for the first time to make up four months worth of readings, just start today. Uh, we also have some hard copies of all these things back in the overflow, free Bibles if you need a Bible, uh, because we want to make sure that you're able to jump in with us. It's been a great uh, experience so far, and we're looking forward to seeing what God does through it for the rest of the year. In the month of April, for the rest of April, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of John in the New Testament. And you might be wondering, you know, why are some of the books of the Bible called Gospels? What does that mean? Well, the word gospel means good news. And there are four of these books, the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And all four of these books in the New Testament, they tell the gospel story, the good news of Jesus Christ, of his life, his death, his resurrections, the things that he taught and did. That's what the gospel books are all about. And, and it's an amazing gift that we have not just one account of Jesus' life. We actually have four unique accounts, perspectives of who Jesus was and what he did. Now, all four of these books agree on the main points of, of Jesus' gospel life. The, the things that we recited during the Apostles' Creed, during the baptism. The, the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that we celebrated just last week, that, that uh, he was crucified for our sins, that he rose again on the third day. We believe those things, and all four books point to that. But if you've ever read them, or as we are reading them together, you'll notice that, that some books of the New Testament include different details of Jesus' life, and others don't have those same details. And it doesn't mean that they're, they're disagreeing about uh, the details of Jesus. It means that they're focusing on different things, different perspectives. Each of these four writers are unique. They have a unique perspective on Jesus' life. And they're also writing these books to different audiences and helping them understand a unique perspective in Jesus' life. It, as though you, when, if you were a kid and you ever had a kaleidoscope... Uh, and you turned it differently, or if you've ever held a, a prism or a, a, maybe a cut gemstone up to the light, it's the same object that you're looking at, but as you turn it and the light hits it in different ways, it becomes more vibrant and more exciting to look at, and, and maybe different shapes and colors and patterns. You notice different things as you turn that singular object. Well, that's what these four gospel books do for us with Jesus' life. We're looking at the same person, Jesus Christ, God's Son, but from different angles, and the more that these books detail about his life, the more vibrant the picture of his story becomes. And John is definitely unique. John has unique things to say about Jesus. He has some stories, some miracles that don't occur in the other three books. And one of the reasons historians think that that's the case is because John's was the last one written. And so he is kind of filling in some of the gaps that Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote. But also, I think because John has a very unique perspective that he wants all of us who are reading his gospel to, to, to come away with. If there was kind of a subtitle for the Gospel of John, one word to describe it, I would use the word love. That, that is the, the mega theme of John's Gospel, love. He wants us again and again to go back to and to realize how much God loves us. To appreciate that love, to receive it, to accept it, to make it part of our lives, to shape our lives around that love. And so as you read through the whole Gospel of John, you'll see him continue to return to the theme of God's love. And it's in our, our scripture reading for this weekend, John 3.16. We already heard it read, but it's up on the screen. Let's read this together out loud. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. 
It's arguably the most famous verse in all of Scripture. In fact, uh, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, and uh, when I was a kid, I watched a lot of sports on TV. I, I still do. Um, but a phenomenon started happening in those days around professional sports that people would start showing up to, to sporting events, holding up big signs that just said John 3.16 on them. No one knew why they were doing it. Or, or uh, yeah, Stone Cold Steve Austin, WrestleMania 92, he beat Jake the Snake Roberts wearing an Austin 316 t-shirt, and it became his theme. And people asked him, what does that mean? He didn't even know. didn't mean anything. But, but the reference itself, that John 316 reference, is so embedded into our culture that it resonates, us, resonates with us without us even realizing it. I think a big reason for that is because you could use that one verse in the Bible to to describe the whole gospel of God. The good news of Jesus Christ, I think, can be summed up in one verse. If somebody was to ask you, you know, you've been maybe coming to church for a little bit and your friends and family, neighbors are asking, you know, what's this Jesus thing all about? What would you say to them? And what I would say is, if I only had a couple of seconds, is John 3.16. The Jesus thing is all about God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. It has the reason of God's love and the action of Jesus coming into our existence, and then our response, what we gain is eternal life, all right there in one verse. If you've been around Hope, you might have heard one of us preaching about this at some point, that, uh, that those numbers, 316, it's a reference for a chapter and verse, but the Bible didn't come with those written in them. They, they were added later uh, to, to make it easier for us to, to find these, these interesting and unique verses. But originally, when it was written, it was one long narrative. It was just a story complete of Jesus' life from beginning to end. And so when you read more than just one verse, uh, again, one of the reasons I I like the the Bible readings that we have as a church that you can jump into, we're reading bigger chunks than just one verse at a time. And you get a true sense, a more more full, vibrant sense of the story. And if it's verse 16, that just tells us it's in the middle of something, right? So what is verse 1? Where is the beginning of this story come from, and how do we get to John 3, 16? Well, we start in verse 1. It says, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who is a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night, and then they start a conversation. Jesus and Nicodemus have this conversation, and that's where John 3, 16 eventually arrives, It's in the context of a conversation that Jesus is having with just one person. So we can actually learn more about that verse by taking a look at the whole conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus. And we learn some important details about him right away in this first verse. The first one is that he is a Pharisee. In fact, I think it's interesting that before we even learn his name, we're told that he's a Pharisee, which tells me that even to Nicodemus, his religion was more important to his identity. That he felt that was the most important thing about him was his religious experience, his religious identity. The best way that I've been able to think of to describe what Pharisees were, um, it's a little bit like Christian denominations are today, a little bit, where in, in Christianity we have different denominations, different groups of people, all worshiping the same Jesus, the same God, but a little bit differently. You know, our, our church is a Lutheran church. Um, there's a Methodist church down the road that we're friends with. All over the city there are different denominations and groups. Well, in Jesus' day, 
they were Jewish, but there wasn't just one way to be Jewish. They had different groups or sects or denominations. And the Pharisees were one of them. We read about another one in the Bible called the Sadducees. They were a little bit different. The Essenes in the Bible, we, we read about them. The Pharisees were known for the way that they practiced their religion as extremely external. They were following the letter of God's law, what we call the Old Testament, perfectly, or as perfectly as they could. They were all about eating the right things and and practicing the right things, worshiping in just the right way, wearing just the right clothes, following detailed letter of the law uh, prescriptions about how to worship God. And so they were extremely focused on the external parts of their life, and they were very influential with the people of that day. Because if you were to come to the temple to worship God as an everyday person, you would have the Pharisees explaining and showing and expecting you to, to follow their lead. They, they were the ones who granted you access to worship God through sacrifice and, and all of the different religious paraphernalia that they oversaw. So it gave them a lot of power in their community. And so Nicodemus is not just any Pharisee, he's part of the ruling group, the Jewish ruling council. He was an important person. So we we learn about Nicodemus, that he's a Pharisee that's important to him. He follows God by religious experience, external significance. He's an important part of this community, but it also shows us why he probably wanted to meet Jesus at night. You see, Jesus and the Pharisees, uh, they weren't necessarily on the same page. In fact, growing up as a young guy, you know, going to Sunday school and, um, you know, we had flannel graphs. Does anybody remember flannel graphs? They're the best. Uh, little popsicle stick puppets and things like that. Anyway, what, what I was told as a young guy was the Pharisees were the bad guys, right? And Jesus and his disciple, they're, they're the good guys. And it's good, kind of like WrestleMania. There's good guys and bad guys. It's very black and white, easy for a kid to understand. So what's Jesus doing hanging out with one of the bad guys? Jesus doesn't seem to look at it that way. Jesus doesn't seem to look at the Pharisees as a bad guy. Now, they they didn't agree on how to come to God. The Pharisees were incredibly threatened by Jesus because as they preached, you need to follow the law perfectly in order to, to be right before God's eyes. Jesus said something completely different. He said, you need to have a relationship with me And be transformed on the inside of your life rather than the outside of your life. And that's how you get to God. And that immediately strips all of the power away from the Pharisees who have people who no longer need to go to God through them. They can go through Jesus to get to the Father. So they felt threatened by Jesus. And it was probably Nicodemus' idea to meet with Jesus at night because he would have a lot to lose if the other members of the Jewish ruling council found out that he was meeting with Jesus. So we're tempted to think in black and white terms that the Pharisees are just the bad guys. Maybe even we're tempted to think that by coming to Jesus at night that that he's just a coward. You know, he's he's too afraid. Why don't you come during the day? You know, have some guts. Proudly proclaim that you're at least curious about Jesus. And again, Jesus is not bothered by by Nicodemus coming to him at night for a conversation. God does not care how or when you want to come to him. I don't know how you see yourself this morning. Maybe you see yourself as a bad person. Maybe you are too afraid to come to God with with your your authentic, heartfelt prayers to have him address some of the things that are going on on the inside of your life. You feel ashamed to come to God for some reason. 
Jesus does not look at us as good and bad or right and wrong. God sees us as a world full of people who he loves, who he longs to be in a relationship with. Whenever and however you want to come to God. It could be, you know, in the morning of a wonderful worship experience at church, and it could be in the middle of the night after you feel like you've hit rock bottom. It does not matter to God how and when and where you come to him. He just wants you to come. He wants to be a part of your life, to have a relationship with you. So he meets with a Pharisee at night to have this conversation. Nicodemus begins by saying, Rabbi, it's a sign of great respect. It's Nicodemus saying that Jesus is on the same level. We know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And take a look at the things that, again, Nicodemus thinks is the most important. The external things that he sees Jesus doing. You're performing these amazing miracles. You're teaching these amazing things. All of the external things, that's what's impressive to Nicodemus because he is an external religious leader. And Nicodemus is curious about this because, again, Nicodemus is doing what he feels is going to have the closest relationship with God that is possible by following the letter of the law. And Jesus is doing some external things that he likes, he sees, and he's curious about. Tell me about this external religious experience, Jesus. I want to know more about what you're doing and what you're saying. Jesus doesn't go there. Jesus changes the way that Nicodemus and the way that all of us see a relationship with God, what it means to have access to the Father. On the next slide, this is how Jesus responds. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Nicodemus replies, how can someone be born again when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Now that sounds kind of funny to us that he doesn't just get this. But remember, you and I have grown up in a culture where we expect spirituality to be largely an internal thing. You and I kind of get that. We grew up in that culture. We get faith and belief as, as an, even if we don't have them for ourselves, to us it feels like an internal reality. Nicodemus did not have that frame of reference. To him, access to God was a purely physical experience, was something that you did on the outside of your life. You practiced these rules and these expectations. And so when, he says, when Jesus says you have to be born again, he is literally thinking in a physical way, how is that possible? I cannot do that. Because I think what so many of us want in our faith life isn't more explanations of an internal reality. We want just some external things to do. Just, just give me a rule, Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life, people asked him. What are the things that I need, the boxes that I need to check? Do I need to read the Bible in a year? Do I need to come to church so many times and say the right prayer and recite the creed together? And are all these things, what do I have to do, Jesus, to to have access to the kingdom of God? And what Jesus tells him is that it's not a physical external experience. If all you do is go through religious experiences, you are missing out on the life that I came to offer you. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Jesus isn't talking about the external parts of our life. He is talking about what's on the inside. That what's inside of you is what needs to be born again. You need to come back to life internally. On the outside, you're okay. In fact, one of the reasons the Pharisees were so mad at Jesus is he compared them at one point to whitewashed tombs. That was his illustration for what the Pharisees looked like. That on the outside, you look great. 
a fresh coat of paint. Everything looks the way it should. But on the inside, you're full of death and decay. And that is the part that God wants to address. Again, it's in John 3.16, the whole point of God's love. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Life is what God wants for you. Not just external life. We all know that this external part of our lives will, will, will fall apart, will diminish, will decay, and be, it'll, be, it'll be done one day. What Jesus is saying is that your spirit, your spiritual self, the inner part of your life will live forever in a relationship with me. That's the kind of life God is offering to each one of us freely through the grace and love of Jesus Christ. To come alive spiritually. And maybe that's how you're feeling today. Maybe on the outside, you meet all of the basic physical descriptions for being alive. We've got a pulse. But what about inside? Maybe we're alive, but we're not really living. The clip that I showed at the beginning of this message is from a movie that came out a few years ago called The Greatest Showman. It's a huge favorite around our house. I've got little kids, uh, but this is the only non-animated movie that they regularly ask for uh, to watch. I'm pretty sure we'll watch it this afternoon for family movie night um, because it's, it's so much fun. They really love the music, and I do too. It's great. It, it's a stylized uh, rendition or interpretation of the life of P.T. Barnum, who, who began Barnum and Bailey's Circus. And so that's what the story depicts, again, in a very stylized, musical way. And you see in this clip as he's beginning to, to unleash this idea on the world of, of a circus, a spectacle, with people they've never seen before. His desire or his vision behind why to do that is because he looks at the world around him and he sees people who meet the basic physical description for being alive, people with a pulse, but who aren't really living. They're just going through the motions of their everyday life. He, in the song, sings that you're just a dead man walking thinking that's your only option, but you can flip the switch and brighten up your darkest day. And in a certain sense, that's what I hear Jesus telling Nicodemus. On the outside, you're doing great. You're alive externally and religiously. No one can fault your religious passion, Nicodemus. You don't need to be born again on the outside because on the inside, that's really where you are experiencing death and decay. You're not really living the life that God has planned for you, the fullness and abundance of life that comes in a relationship with Jesus who gives it to you graciously because of his unending love. That's the kind of life that God offers us, internal spiritual life forever. Now, in the movie, in the story, P.T. Barnum doesn't come up with this idea initially for a show, for a spectacle. In fact, he begins this process by purchasing uh, a museum that's full of, uh, of stuffed um, trophy animals and things like that from around the world or wax figurines depicting historical scenes and uh, a bunch of inanimate objects that he thinks he's convinced people will just want to pay to come and look at, uh, things that are, are, are static, that, that are unresponsive, but they're at least interesting. He thinks that people will want to see these interesting things, and of course, no one's buying it. Literally, no one's buying any tickets to come and see his museum. He's frustrated, and after one long day of people continuing not to resonate with this idea, he comes home and is talking with his girls at bedtime, and they're really the ones who help set him straight. Let's watch. Are you selling more tickets today? 
few. Yeah. Most everyone was rushing home. It's Friday, but... We sold a few. I think you have too many dead things in your museum, Daddy. Do you? She's right. You need something alive. Go to sleep, both of you. Something sensational. That's a big word. It's your word. Something that isn't stuffed. Like a mermaid. Or a unicorn. Unicorns aren't real. Well, mermaids aren't real either. How's it looking, girls? Hey, you looking for freaks? I know where you can find one of them. Really? Come on, girls. Hello. Sir, you shouldn't be here. I'm sorry. I, who's doing this thing? you, isn't it? Sir, I have to ask you to leave. You are so talented, blessed. Extraordinary. Unique. I would even say beautiful. <laughs> Sir, please leave me alone. but they will. She tells her dad there, I think there are too many dead things. They're, they're stuffed, they're inanimate, they're not alive, and that's what is missing. And I hear that same thing being said to Nicodemus, that Jesus is saying, there are too many dead things on the inside of your life. And for all of us, as we walk through our lives and we experience what it is that God wants for us, and maybe we think like Nicodemus, we can find it just in religious experience on the outside, but what we're missing is being born again on the inside, finding the new life that Jesus offers to us. And, and it can be difficult because I think like Nicodemus, so many of us, myself included, again, would just like to know what do I need to do? What are the rules, the expectations, the experiences that I should apply? And that's what's going to allow me to feel or to experience new life. It's harder to conceive of faith, of belief that comes from the inside out. Those are words that make us feel uncomfortable. We don't really know what to do with that. We don't have a category for what faith and belief really look like. When John 3.16 says that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life, how does that go? Where does that come from? Thankfully, the Bible spends a lot of time explaining this, exploring this. We're not the only ones with these questions. 
in another book of the Bible, in Romans chapter 10, it explains the idea behind or what it looks like to live a life of faith. It says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The temptation, again, for us is to think externally. What does this mean if I declare with my mouth, Jesus is Lord? Is that like some magic words that if I just say verbally, Jesus is Lord, then that's like the magic words, open sesame, that I'm in? No, it's, it's, it's actually expressing what a life of faith looks like every single day. That to say Jesus is Lord means that Jesus is the king of your life. He is the sole authority that you look to for direction, for purpose, for salvation. That no one and nothing is more important to you than Jesus. That, that he is our highest aim in life. To follow him and him alone. That we, won't want, we don't want anything to get between us and the love of God. That's what it means to declare that Jesus is Lord, that he is the authority of our life. And that's really hard to do. So many other things are competing for our attention, for our authority, for our allegiance. And to live a life of faith means to say that no one is higher in my life than Jesus. He is the one who gets to tell me where I go and what I do. Because he is the only one who has loved me enough to put himself in a place that I couldn't put myself to, to die a death for me that I couldn't, to sacrifice himself, to pay for the sins in my life, the darkness, the death that's inside of me, he paid for. He loves me that much. So he's going to be my authority, my king, and my Lord. And that's what I think gives us the ability then to believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that we don't worship a dead Jesus. We worship a living Christ, that God's son was not crucified and stayed dead. He came alive. God brought him back to life, and we worship the Son of God who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father, advocating for us, sending the Holy Spirit into our lives to help us find this new life in Christ, to experience being born again. And Jesus continues to help us explore this. It's not easy. I'm not saying it's going to be something that we get right away in one moment. One of our core values at Hope is that following Jesus is a growing experience. Every single day is going to look different as you continue to walk with Jesus and explore your faith and get closer in a relationship with him. In fact, Jesus said as much. It's a daily experience. In another gospel, in the, chap in the book of Luke chapter 9, it'll be on the next screen, it says this, Whoever wants to be my disciple... My follower must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. And again, hopefully you've seen as we've explored in the Gospel of John, he's not talking about a physical experience. It would be impossible for us physically to take up a cross every single day as a part of following Jesus in our faith life. He's talking about something that's happening inside of you every day, an internal experience of losing your life inside, of, of giving up, of surrendering the things in your life that are dead and that need to be gotten rid of, nailed to the cross of Christ. Oftentimes you'll hear us sing around hope and you'll hear it again as we close our message. We lay things down at the feet of Jesus or we, we give them to the cross of Christ. And it's really helpful for us to think metaphorically along those terms, but it can also be really helpful practically to, to, to do something external, not as a thing to check off, a box to check, but as a, a, an internal reminder for things that are going on on the inside of our lives. So today we've set up a, a station over here at the foot of the cross that at any time during the rest of the, uh, of the service you're welcome to participate in. There's some paper with pens. You can write down on a piece of paper, what is something in your life that's dead on the inside? 
You know, the Bible calls these things sins. Barriers between you and experiencing the fullness of God's love. Habits, addictions, thought patterns. It, it might even be the, 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 the feeling you're feeling right now of, I just don't know if I can believe this, but I want to. And you can give that to God. You can lay it down at the foot of the cross. In fact, I'm going to do that myself right now. I've got plenty of them. This is the fifth service, but I've got so many more, I can write a few more down. Sorry for our camera guys who are having to keep up with me. But at any time, you can come over here. You guys got the good seats in this corner. And you can write down whatever it is that you think is coming between you and God and lay it down at the foot of the cross and leave it there. Why are you carrying around the things in your life that are dead? The barriers that you feel like are keeping you between God's love and the forgiveness and power that comes in new life from Jesus Christ. You can let those things go. Take up your cross daily. Not just once, but every day. Continuing to surrender, to give over to God the darkness and death that he has already promised to take away and to wash away from your life. The, the, the ability that he gives us is, is the only ability we need to surrender to him, to accept this gift of grace and new life. You know, many of us are, are familiar, I think, with, with John 3.16, but not so much what happens next, what, what Jesus says just after that. Yes, it's true, he came to give us new life, eternal life. And he says this, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light. We do question and answer nights around here pretty frequently with students and children, and we've even done them on weekends as a part of sermons. And um, I, I think every time we've done a question and answer that in the years I've been here, without fail, one of the questions that gets asked is, and maybe it's a question you're asking now, how could a good and loving God send someone to hell? If God loves us so much, then how could he send someone to hell? And I point to this verse and I say the only person that God sent anywhere, the Bible tells us about, is his son into the world to rescue us. That's the only time God sends anyone. God sends the son into the world to set us free. To die a death we couldn't die. To pay a penalty that we couldn't pay. And if, if we, viewing that promise and that forgiveness, born on the cross of Jesus Christ, if we look at that love and we say, no, thank you, I don't need that. I don't want light, I don't want life, I don't want your love and I don't want your forgiveness and grace, then it's not God who is condemning us. It's us, the Bible says. God gives us the ability to accept, to receive, to embrace his love. But he also gives us the ability to say, no, thank you. I think I'm fine on my own. And that's a condemned life. That's a life that leads only to death. When we find ourselves unwilling to freely embrace the love that Jesus has for us, and he gives it to anyone. He meets with Nicodemus in the middle of the night, this religious man who is not finding life in his religion. And maybe that's you. He meets other people other times in the scriptures. He meets with a prostitute during the middle of a meal. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is invited over to a Pharisee's home for lunch. His name is Simon. And when Simon opens the door and Jesus comes in for lunch, he just sits right down and starts eating. And eventually, a prostitute comes in and starts washing Jesus' feet with her hair. 
Jesus turns to the woman and he says to Simon the Pharisee, do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her kiss. With her hair, you did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Did you catch that, what Jesus is saying there? Because she, in her life, in the depth of what she feels is depraved in her life, has been forgiven for her many sins, she is then willing to offer abundant forgiveness and love to other people. But this Pharisee, who has not received or accepted forgiveness in his life, who thinks that he is okay, has earned it, that everything on the outside is fine, he doesn't offer forgiveness or love readily. The more forgiveness you and I experience in our life, the more ready we are to forgive and accept other people, to to resonate with other people around us and to offer them the same love that we have received ourselves. I don't know if you've ever felt it, being forgiven for something, maybe by another person who you've wronged or made mistakes against, and if you've ever said, I'm sorry, that was a mistake, and they said, it's okay, I love you, I forgive you. If If you've ever experienced that, you know what I'm talking about. Because it changes the way that you live your life, experiencing that kind of forgiveness. And everything you've ever done in your life, Jesus looks at you and he says, I forgive you and I love you and it's okay. Come back to me. Come back alive. There's a hero of the faith for me, at least. Uh, His name was Brennan Manning. And and before Brennan Manning became a a world-renowned author and speaker and preacher, he lived his life as an alcoholic on the streets. And he was devoted to that addiction. And he writes about this and talks about it a lot. But after Brennan Manning laid that addiction down at the foot of the cross and gave his life to Jesus, received the free love and forgiveness that Jesus offers to everyone, when he received that for himself, because he had felt so forgiven for so many wrongs and and the darkness in his life, he couldn't help but telling other people about how much God loves them too. So we're going to watch a little bit of one of his sermons. And I want you, as we're watching this, to put yourself in a position of the conversation that he is describing. Think of it as though God is speaking to you in this moment about his love. And see how you would answer the questions that are being asked. So let's watch together. In the 48 years since I was first ambushed by Jesus, in a little chapel in the Allegheny Mountains of Western Pennsylvania, And then literally the thousands of hours of prayer, meditation, silence, and solitude over those years, I am now utterly convinced that on Judgment Day, the Lord Jesus is going to ask each of us one question, and only one question. Did you believe that I loved you? That I desired you? That I waited for you day after day? that I long to hear the sound of your voice. The real believers there will answer, yes, Jesus. I believe in your love and I try to shape my life as a response to it. But many of us who are so faithful in our ministry, in our practice, in our church going, are gonna have to reply, well, frankly, no, sir. I mean, I never really believed it. I mean, I heard a wonderful, a lot of wonderful sermons and teachings about it. In fact, I gave quite a few myself. 
But I always thought that was just a way of speaking, a kindly lie, some Christian's pious pat on the back to cheer me on. And there's the difference between the real believers and the nominal Christians that abound in our churches across the land. No one can measure like a believer the depth and the intensity of God's love, but at the same time, no one can measure like a believer the effectiveness of our gloom, pessimism, low self-esteem, self-hatred, and despair that block God's way to us. Do you see why it is so important to lay hold of this basic truth of our faith? Because you're only going to be as big as your own concept of God. Remember the famous line of the French philosopher, Blaise Pascal? God made man in his own image, and man returned the compliment. We often make God in our own image, and he winds up to be as fussy, rude, narrow-minded, legalistic, judgmental, unforgiving, unloving as we are. In the past couple of three years, I have preached the gospel to the financial community in Wall Street, New York City, the airmen and women of the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, a thousand physicians in Nairobi. I've been in churches in Bangor, Maine, Miami, Chicago, St. Louis, Seattle, San Diego, and honest, the God of so many Christians I meet is a God who is too small for me because he is not the God of the Word. He is not the God revealed by and in Jesus Christ who this moment comes right to your seat and says, I have a word for you. I know your whole life story. I know every skeleton in your closet. I know every moment of sin, shame, dishonesty, and degraded love that has darkened your past. Right now, I know your shallow faith, your feeble prayer life, your inconsistent discipleship, and my word is this. I dare you to trust that I love you just as you are and not as you should be, because you're never gonna be as you should be. So as we get ready to respond uh, in our closing song together, that's the simple question that you get to answer today. Do you believe that Jesus really loves you? Really believe it. No matter who you are, what time of day, where you're coming from, that, that God's love is for you, free. And that you can bring whatever it is that you feel is blocking your way to experiencing that full love and leave it at the foot of the cross that you can walk into, step into the light and the life of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis said this, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. That's what the light of Jesus Christ does for us. It's not just something that we look at and investigate. It's something that shapes our life, that brings light to all of creation, that allows us to see other people as he sees them, as forgiven and loved to offer that forgiveness and love freely ourselves because we have been forgiven for so much. So as we finish this time, like I said, you can make this station available. You can do it during the song or if you want to wait for people to leave, it'll be there for you. But let's stand together as we close our time. I'm going to pray for us and then the worship team is going to lead us in one more song. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your love that love that, that sent your only son into our world to set us free and to give us new life. Help each one of us in the room to grab hold of your free gift of grace, to let go of the darkness and the death that's on the inside of our lives and to experience true new life, forgiveness, 
in a relationship with you. And for all of us, God, who struggle with unbelief from time to time, send your Holy Spirit into our lives. Help us in our unbelief to surrender more and more to you all the time so that you can illuminate our lives and and help us to live into our identity as your followers, sharing your love and your light with the world around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.